Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I am not Pastor Dave. I work with our marriage and families. Uh, I got an email from Dave on Monday. Dave is one of the toughest guys I know. So when he's not here because he's not feeling good, he's really not feeling good. Uh, you might have read his email this week. Dave has shingles. That was a good reaction. I'll tell him that. He will feel better. Uh, but he is in a lot of pain. And so uh, we just want to lift him up in prayer, but his email to me was, he, he said, Jewish people should handle Romans 9 anyway, so you'll be fine. <laughs> so, we looked around, and I'm the only Jew around, so here we go. So you can go there, we're going we're gonna to look at Romans 9, we're going to dig deep, and uh, I don't know if this has ever been done, but we are going to take a nautical approach to Romans 9, if there was ever a theme. But I, I want to talk about this idea of being dead in the water, with no hope of, of survival, of recovery, of getting out. Uh, Tim Nellis, who was just up here, he moved uh, maybe a week or two ago, and I, <laughs> there's a reason that men die earlier than women. Um, we do things oftentimes that are stupid. And uh, we, he lives upstairs, which is a question you want to ask people before you offer to help them move. Um, but moving a couch that is, it must have been 12 feet long, but it probably wasn't. It's a little bit of an embellishment. Going upstairs and finally getting it up there. Hi, Tim. I'm talking about you right now. Um, getting up there and realizing this thing is not going in the door and taking the couch. And so we decided we came up, we hatched this plan, which is dangerous, but we're pastors, we don't want to buy another couch. This thing has got to get in somehow. So we started planning this out and get the couch up on top of the U-Haul truck that he had rented, drove it over to the balcony right underneath, and we have these guys, and we're lifting it up and over and through the sliding door, and it's in, and it kind of fits in his house, and it's beautiful. But we, we, we lived to tell about it, and we're here. Um, but this idea of, of being dead in the water, you've probably heard of the Titanic and it went down and I, I often have had this image of fear. I, I've not been on a cruise. I don't know if I ever want to go on a cruise, but I, I just want to remind you of the scene that took place. It's up on the screens right about now. Come on, girls. 
Grab an oar. Let's go. Are you out of your mind? We're in the middle of the North Atlantic. Now, do you people want to live or do you want to die? I don't understand a one of you. What's the matter with you? It's your men out there. There's plenty of room for more. And there'll be one less on this boat. If you don't shut that hole in your face. So. <laughs> I've had this dream. Connected to this movie. Uh, it probably happened after I watched it. That I was on the Titanic. It went down and I am dead in the water. And. Knowing that death is imminent, I send out a prayer asking God to save me. This is my dream. And thunder and lightning from heaven go out and from the sky drops a lifeboat. Much bigger than this pathetic thing. It comes down and it falls into the ocean and God says, I have saved you. Climb aboard and get as many other people as you can on there with you. So I make my way over. I get into the lifeboat. Get in and it starts to feel kind of comfortable. I have some space. I can move around. And slowly the voices that were joining me in the water have slowly started to fade away. And I have become comfortable in this boat. In fact, I know it's a dream because I started doing somersaults and cartwheels in the lifeboat. But this idea of, I'm saved, I'm good, I don't have to worry about anybody else, can be how we have approached the spiritual life. Many of you in here are saved. God reached down, pulled you out. You were dead in the water. You think about... The many souls that passed away on the Titanic. Think about those who lost their lives, dead in the water. And then you have those folks who were on the boat. And maybe they could have taken more. But they were safe. This save yourself type of attitude. This is something that we have taken on in Christianity. We need to abandon our attitude of save yourself. There is an outline in the bulletin you can check in. We are in the book of Romans. We are in the middle of a series called Set Free. That we have a God that wants to set us free. Now, Romans 1 through 8 has been very doctrinal, very theological. We've looked at condemnation in the first three chapters. In chapters 3 through 5, we, we see that there's salvation, that we have been freed. That's called justification. And then in chapters 6 through 8, it's sanctification. It's how we grow. Now we get into the national section. Chapters 9 through 11 outline what is God's relationship with Israel. Today we want to talk about how Israel was done with God. Next week we want to talk about how God is not done with Israel. So we want to deal with the nationality. And even in, in chapters 9, 10, 11, you look at Israel's past and their present and their future. But it's the vindication that God is calling out his people and God is saving his people. But we have this attitude of save yourself that needs abandoning. Now look with me in chapter 9 verse 1. This is Paul saying, 
I am telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh who are Israelites. Let's stop there. Paul does not have this attitude of, I need to save myself. Paul knows that he's saved. We're even, just think about the context of Paul's salvation on the road to Damascus. A Jew going to persecute other Jews who put their faith in Jesus, who were followers of Jesus. And God reached down and pulled him out, saved him. And he says he has great sorrow, unceasing grief. He desires for the Jewish people to be saved. And he says, I wish I could be separated from Christ. Send me to hell so that they might live and that they might be saved. And then he goes on and he, he continues to say, these are Israelites in verse 4. And he talks about the credentials, the beauty of the Jewish people. To whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises Whose are the fathers, the patriarchs, and from whom is the Messiah, the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever? Look at these words up on the screen. This is the Jewish people. They were adopted as God called them and brought them out of Egypt. He said, you are my people. His glory, his presence was manifested with him. He gave them covenants. Mosaic covenant. He was with them. He gave them the law and said, this is how I want you to worship me. And he gave them a promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. And we have from the the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus the Messiah comes from that line. The Jewish people, of all people, the chosen people, should be saved. But good genes don't mean a thing when we're treading water. Continue to read with me in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. We're we're digging deep. This is some big theology, but I I want you to read this again. And take notes because you're not going to hear this again in another church. This, This passage doesn't come up often. But they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for through the twin, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. See, It doesn't matter, even today, the family you are born into. 
You could have a beautiful Christian heritage going back generations and generations. You were not born Christians, you were reborn Christians. Paul's message to the Jewish people is, just because you are God's chosen people does not mean that you will be saved. You must be reborn. And then we go through a little bit of the family tree. And we have Abraham. Abraham married to Sarah, loses some patience and goes to Hagar. But out of the seed of Abraham, we have two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael, we have the Ishmaelites, not chosen of God, not saved, but it's out of Isaac. But it's not even that there's two different mothers going on, because then we have the next example. Isaac marries Rebekah, and she has twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, look at the passage here. They are not all Israel who descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. There is something more than just who you are born to. So Isaac and Rebekah have twins, Jacob and Esau. And out of Jacob, we have Israel, the Israelites. In verses 10 and 11, it says, There was Rebekah also, and she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, they weren't even born, they had not even done anything good or bad, has nothing to do with their actions. God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's an interesting family tree. It's also, you can follow the women who struggled with barrenness, could not have children, and out of that, God births a nation. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel all struggled with having children early on. But God's promise came. And those who followed by faith were blessed. Children of the promise. Now, what about the family that you were born into? I think sometimes we think, well, I come from a good family. We might even look at our own children and grandchildren and we might think, well, look at us. We're okay. They're going to be okay. God is saying, it's not your genes. That's not what pulls you up and out of the water. What we need to do is we need to look. If God is the one that decides, and even for the twins, before they were even born, there was a decision made, God's election that we're going to be going to be getting into, there's something going on here that we have to pay attention to. We have to re-examine our own salvation, but we also have to re-examine the depths of God's mercy. So look at this. In verse 14, it says this. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Or God forbid. Is God unjust? Paul says no. God forbid. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Is God unjust? No. See, there's a sovereign God who chooses to have mercy and compassion on who he 
wants. And so we have this example, and you can see in the outline, there's these three groups of people that we're going to go through in the next few verses. Moses and Pharaoh, a potter and clay, and what I call the insiders and the outsiders. You look at how many capital letters and blocks here. It's, it's amazing to look at the book of Romans. This is not stuff that Paul is coming up with. It'd be really easy to say, well, Paul had this experience where God just reached out and pulled him up out of the water and saved him. And so Paul is just giving us all kinds of stuff. The number of Old Testament quotations in the book of Romans is unbelievable. I don't have to use cross-references today because Paul has done it for us. This is an Old Testament study. Even in the, the previous section where God says that he has mercy, we have passages from Genesis and then we even go down to, to Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That's in the book of Malachi. So you have the entire Old Testament canon that is put before us as if to say, hey, from the beginning to the very end, this is something that God has thought of. This is not something that Paul has thought of from the very beginning. And so God will have Mercy on who he wants to have mercy on and compassion on whom he wants to have compassion on. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The man who wills, if a guy just chooses, or the man who runs by my works, the things that I can do, that I can try to earn the salvation of God, it's, it's not about that at all. But for whatever reason, we as human beings, I get stuck in those patterns all the time. If I just will myself, if I just work harder, if I follow the laws, I get so disappointed with my sin because I'm messing it up again. I just need to pull it all together so that I can be accepted by God. Dave shared uh, a word um, last week. And he's talking in chapter 8 about how God... Our God causes all things to work together for good. This work together, sooner jail. It's a synergy by God to mix it all together. Those are the circumstances in our lives, but the salvation of God, I want to just teach you two words here. The salvation of God is a monergistic act, not a synergistic act. There's nothing on your part that you could do to save yourself, God reached down all by himself and saved you. This is a theology that has run its course. Monergism, synergism, you may have heard of more as Calvinism, Arminianism. Monergism being regeneration of an individual is the work of God through the Holy Spirit Alone, Synergism is the human will cooperates with God's grace in order to be regenerated. A few hundred years ago, you look at the Puritans, the guys who had the musket and the dead turkey. They were Calvinists. It was God alone who did the saving. And a couple hundred years ago, Arminianism, we, we, we can't understand. We have trouble with it that God alone could be that sovereign that he would save us. So, Jacob Arminius comes up with another way to try to fit 
and make God make sense where there's a place where maybe God just doesn't make all that much sense. And it's hard for us to understand. And we've even moved from that into liberalism where we just reason and ration things out. This is not how God works. And we get upset by this. And this is not, this is not an issue of justice. This is an issue of mercy. Because justice would be, none of us get in. We want things to be fair. And like my dad used to say, if you want fair, go to Pomona. God is a God of mercy. Now, this happened before I was alive, but Richard Nixon got in some trouble. Watergate. Many of you were alive and knew about that and saw that whole thing go on. And Gerald Ford steps in. And what does he do? Clemency. He pardons him. In fact, it, it says, I read an article about it this week, that it was an act of mercy. Nixon wasn't the only one involved, remember? There were other people involved. Were they granted pardon? No, no, Ford thought it would be the best thing for our country to not have one of our presidents in jail. And as a result, parties divided, and Ford got so much hate mail. But what was the mail about? Was it saying you should have let them all free? You should have pardoned and granted clemency to everybody? That wasn't what the hate mail was about. It was, why did you grant mercy to just this one? I mean, an illustration, I mean, think about this. Guys, if there's a group of guys that break into your home, beat up your wife for six hours, kill her, they're all guilty. They stand before the judge. The judge says, what do you want to do? Let's say you're the judge. You, you could say, I, I want to save this one. And they say, no, 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 he'll be running for you. Okay, then I will adopt him and he will become my own. He will live in my house. I will take care of him. Sleep here in my home. Total forgiveness. Nobody would say, why did you not take them all in? Why did you not grant pardon to all of them? They would say, you are a madman for forgiving the one, that you would give mercy to even the one when they all deserved to go to prison. See, we're all guilty. We've all sinned. We've all messed up. So we're undeserving of the mercy of God. God chooses, it's out of his mercy and out of his compassion that we are saved. That, our response, should be gratefulness. That is how we should be worshiping and approaching God. Thank you for saving me. I was dead in the water, but your mercy, the mercy of God, pulled you out. So we get a few examples here. Moses. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God as there may never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he, God, has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. I'm not making this up. I wish I could defend God a little bit better, but God is sovereign and God is going to do what God wants to do. He's going to grant mercy to those he wants to grant mercy to, and he's going to harden those who he wants to harden. In in Proverbs 16, it says, All things have their purpose, even the wicked for the day of judgment. So, God's glory will be seen one way or another. In verse 19, it says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If God is the one that chooses, then how can anybody be at fault it says, for who resists his will? Verse 20, on the contrary, careful how you ask questions to God. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? See, clay does not talk. Or does the potter, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump, that same lump being sinful man, from that same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? See, even in this illustration, Paul is making the point, God is going to choose who is saved and who is not. Some of you in your hearts are resisting me a little bit right now because we want the choice, but God has his elect. It changes evangelism a little bit, doesn't it? That I have to somehow will people over. Really, we have to give them the truth about who God is. And God will make himself known. So it says, what if God, in verse 22, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, with much pain. God is enduring those who are not following after him. Endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if God did that? God is patient so that we might be saved. In verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, even you, even me, God prepared for glory. Whom he also called Not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Listen to this. We have Jews and Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Back then, Paul and the Jewish people at that point, they're they're walking around and they're seeing that the Gentiles are being saved. That those who were not the chosen of God are receiving the promises of God. In Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, the question they were asking 2,000 years ago was not, what are we going to do with all of these Jewish people getting saved? It was, can the Gentiles receive this also? 2,000 years later, people are saying, you're Jewish, but wait, you believe in Jesus? (laughs) Yes. The question was much different 2,000 years ago. So God has saved the Jewish people. That 
that was the plan, right? You were my chosen people. But also the Gentiles. Even look in the Old Testament. One of the greatest salvations in all of the Old Testament history is the people of Nineveh. They estimate somewhere around 120,000 Gentiles were saved. It's not a surprise. It's not a brand new thing once you get to the New Testament. But God has extended. God has invited those who are not just the chosen. Not all Israel by the flesh will be saved. And so we have this idea, this concept of what I call the insiders and the outsiders. And we'll go into this far more next week. This is what it says. And we're going to quote a few Old Testament guys like Hosea and Isaiah. Verse 25, he says, I will call those who were not my people, my people. The Gentiles who were not my people, I'm now calling them my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. You can imagine the heads that were turning amongst the Jewish people in those days. What? Salvation is for the Gentiles as well? There's 8 million people in Israel today. The, the stat is 100,000 of them. 100,000 Jewish believers in Israel. It's a remnant. In fact, we read about this remnant. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. I mean, think about it. God is being patient. I, I think it's amazing that I'm part of this remnant today. Part of my mission in life, even apart from what happens here at Calvary Church, is I have a burden to see the lost sheep of the house of Israel come to know their Messiah, to have faith in their Messiah. But God is being patient. You look, and God was patient in Sodom, and he wanted to pull out a remnant named Lot. There was a flood back in Noah's day, and God was patient. And so Noah and his family were saved. In Jericho, they're walking around the wall for days, so Rahab might be saved. There's a remnant. In verse 29, just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a posterity, a, a remnant, out of his mercy, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. So we get to this point of, it's not us who are saving ourselves, but it is God. And just like in my dream where I'm doing somersaults in the lifeboat, that lifeboat is Jesus. Jesus is the lifeboat that sets us free. And this is what it says. I'm going to read this twice. In verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. Even the righteousness which is what? It's not by works, but it's by faith. Gentiles receiving the righteousness of the God of Israel because of their faith, not because they were following 613 laws out of the Old Testament. Faith is what saved them. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, all of their works, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. 
but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I want you to hear this from a translation of the Bible called The Message. Before you get up in arms, it's good. I think he got it right here. It says this. How can we sum this up? All those people who didn't seem interested in what God was doing actually embraced what God was doing as he straightened out their lives. And Israel, who seemed so interested in reading and talking about God was doing, missed it. How could they miss it? Because instead of trusting God, they took over. They were absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were so absorbed in their God projects that they didn't notice God right in front of them, like a huge rock in the middle of the road. And so they stumbled into him and went sprawling. Isaiah, again, gives us the metaphor for pulling this all together. Check this out. Careful. I've put a huge stone on the road to Mount Zion, a stone you can't get around. But the stone is me. If you're looking for me, you will find me on the way, not in the way. It's poetic. It's beautiful. That is the story of the Jewish people even today. Jesus is the lifeboat that sets us free. I did a Jewish wedding last night. I wore the kippah, the talit, the prayer shawl. And I looked at some of the Jewish people there. It was, I have a little bit of a Jewish fun over. It was too much Jewish last night. Um, I, I feel a little bit, but I, I'm looking there and there are Jewish people who do not know Jesus as their Messiah. I mean, that, that's the majority, Right. And they look at me, they say, I'm a sugar nut, and, which means crazy. And they don't get it. They are fine with God in the Old Testament, but the second that you put Jesus in that conversation, it's a stumbling stone. I have to talk about, with sensitivity, how I'm going to talk about Jesus in a context like that. It's amazing. And I have to sometimes just choose to offend God is the one that chooses. I just want to go to the first couple verses in chapter 10. I want you to hear the heart of Paul. And I was feeling this last night. Brethren, my heart's desire. And this is very similar to the first few verses of chapter 9. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for the Jewish people, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You have been saved. You were dead in the water and pulled out. There's a story a couple weeks ago about 
a couple that was moving out of their third-story apartment. And as they were taking stuff downstairs out into the, the moving truck, they saw, they looked up, and climbing out of a window was a three-year-old toddler. And they looked up. They happened to be carrying the box spring of their bed downstairs, panicked, ran out, and like a movie, got over there just in time to save the three-year-old as he came tumbling down. Parents totally unaware. It's an amazing story. Fire department, everybody shows up on the scene. What's even more amazing is they said, it's funny because earlier today, both of us were stuck in an elevator for 30 minutes. If we weren't freed from that elevator, we would have never been able to go over here and been part of saving this child. I want you to understand that you have been set free, that God has saved you but not just so that you could enjoy your salvation, but that you would be a light pointing to the Messiah so that they would see your good works, but they would see the Father who's already elected and pulled them out. We're going to talk about this more next week. But our response this morning is to look to a God who alone can rescue, a God who alone saves and to be grateful, and to worship him in spirit and truth. So let's pray, and we will praise that God this morning. Lord God, we thank you this morning that you have called us to yourself, that you love us, you care for us, that we who have faith in you are children of the promise. It's not about what family we were born into. It's not about our works, about our willing or our running to do good. Even before we were born, you called us in your sovereignty. We don't want to soften your sovereignty. Even by saying that you chose those who you foreknew were going to choose you already. God, you chose us, us having done nothing. So we worship you because of that. And we thank you because of that salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.